0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 45, Atari, Ventures, and Acquisition. One, two,
1: three, four. If anybody wants to find
0: Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Hello from the past or the future. We don't know where. Because as we record this, we have not played our Atari because it has not become the day of its 45th anniversary. (laughs) But you, the great listener, you get to celebrate because you're listening to this after that fact. But that's not important. What is important is that Atari is crashing and burning. But it's not crashing and burning and taking the video game industry with it. Well, maybe it is because it's the entire video game industry.
1: (laughs) But it get to do it again. That's right. When we last left this story, Atari, which had started as a partnership between Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, was now a company in which Ted Dabney had been forced out. Nolan Bushnell was now chairman and he had brought in a new professional management team to run the company. All this company did was saddle the company with corporate politics, poor communication across departments, and a complete lack of understanding on how a coin-operated game should be built and sold. Don't forget bureaucracy. Always bureaucracy. Coupled with the fact that Atari had tried an international expansion that went rather poorly...
0: We're blaming you, Japan.
1: And the general just collapse of the Pong market and the ball and paddle market left Atari very vulnerable at the exact moment that National Semiconductor decided to require cash up front for a key component of their latest game, Grand Track 10, which they hoped would be the next hit to carry them forward, but instead they had to halt production for months. This left Atari with a $600,000 loss, almost about $573,000 for the 1974 fiscal year ending June 1st, and left them very near death as banks refused to lend to them. Massive layoffs started. Al Alcorn tells the story of how one day they just had to take Nolan out of the office to a bar across the street because he was just in tears and beside himself because he saw the entire business. Going up in smoke. Yeah. It was that, that bad.
0: That would be very traumatic for anyone.
1: But they had an ace up their sleeves that not even they had really counted on, I think. And that ace was key games. Now, we haven't covered
0: key games before, and I don't think you and I have ever talked about them.
1: Sure. Uh, I, I, don't, I think you're right. I don't think we have. We've talked before about the three tiered system of the coin operated amusement business the manufacturers that create the games, the distributors that they sell the games to, and the operators that buy the games from distributors and then put them on locations, sometimes locations they own themselves, sometimes locations owned by someone else that they split the profits with. The coin-operated amusement industry at this period of time was entirely focused around the jukebox business, just because for the longest time the jukebox had been the biggest money maker. By the early 1970s, the jukebox is in a long and irreversible decline, but there was a historical revolving around the jukebox business. There were four major jukebox companies, Seberg, Wurlitzer, Rocola, and Roe International. At the beginning of the 1970s, Wurlitzer dropped out in the United States, so that left just three. And distribution was based around these three companies, essentially. So every major city or major region, if they didn't have a big enough city, basically had an exclusive Seeburg distributor, an exclusive Roe distributor, and an exclusive Rockola distributor, and an exclusive Wurlitzer distributor when they were around. Exclusive, as in they were the only ones in that territory selling the line of that jukebox distributor. They would pattern their game sales in the exact same kind of exclusive way. There were four major pinball companies, and really only three of them were huge, and then the fourth was pretty small compared to them. Bally, Gottlieb, Williams, Chicago Coin. So in any given region, maybe the Seberg jukebox distributor would also be the Gottlieb pinball distributor, and he would be the exclusive distributor of Gottlieb pins in his area. So nobody could have more than a third of the market because usually operators would only deal with one distributor. Because operators, they just want a game that's going to take in some quarters. They don't care if it's the absolute best game ever. If it's earning them quarters, fine. Operators tend to deal with only one distributor. So because distributors carry a line exclusively, the effect is that you can usually only penetrate a third or half of the market Even if you have a hit product, even if everyone wants your product, you're still limited by the distribution system. So another one of Nolan Bushnell's great ideas was let's create a competitor that we secretly own. We don't tell anyone we own. They will get their game designs just like we do from Grass Valley, Cyan Engineering, which we talked about in the last episode, the advanced R&D operation of Atari, run by Steve Meyer and Larry Emmons. They will tweak their designs a little bit so the game is just a little bit different than the Atari version. They will sell their games to one distributor. Atari will sell their games to another distributor. And now they have more of the market. When did they set this up? Late 1973. Okay. And it was called Key Games because the person that Nolan Bushnell got to run the company was his across-the-street neighbor who lived across the street from him named Joe Keenan. Joe Keenan was a, an accountant. He had an accounting degree, I should say, from LaSalle University in Philadelphia. He went into the computer business as a salesman. He became an IBM salesman. He was a very ambitious guy. He left IBM because he realized he would never be president there, because IBM's a huge company. He realized his advancement in a ginormous company was limited. He went from IBM to a company called Applied Logic, a much smaller company and worked for them in New Jersey. They made him their Western Regional Sales Manager, so that moved him to California. And he was opening up computer centers for applied logic on the West Coast. That was kind of his job. Bushnell knew him because they were neighbors. And he was a very good salesman and a very good businessman. He had a far better grasp on business than Nolan Bushnell or any of Nolan Bushnell's engineering friends that were running Atari. He gave Key Games this company, and it was a subsidiary of Atari, but they kept that a complete secret. If you look at the trades at the time, there's nothing at all about them being owned. And if they do a game that's similar to Atari's, they'll the trades may even say that they license the game from Atari. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, they kept it absolutely secret, because otherwise the the illusion is blown, and they can't get distributors in two different places anymore. <laughs> and they gave him... A few staff members. They gave him Steve Bristow, who had recently joined the company as the number two engineer. Al Alcorn was engineer number one. Steve Bristow was engineer number two, another Ampex video file guy. What Big a surprise! surprise. There. <laughs> you know it's interesting. This is slight tangent, but Silicon Valley was already known as Silicon Valley at that point. But Silicon Valley was mostly the manufacturing of silicon. That's what gave it the name Silicon Valley. Today, there are all sorts of consumer oriented companies, technology
0: companies. You Mm -hmm. got Google, Apple, all sorts of them just churning out consumer
1: products. But back then, the silicon in Silicon Valley was really the fact that it was the center of integrated circuit manufacturing, which is, of course, all made of silicon. That basically happened because the inventor of the transistor or the man who led the team that invented the transistor, William Shockley, who invented it at Bell Labs on the East Coast, started his own company on the West Coast because his mother was living in Palo Alto, California, and he wanted to be near his mother. So he started Shockley Semiconductor in Palo Alto. He hired some of the brightest minds in metallurgy and physics and chemistry and microelectronics to work for him at Shockley Semiconductor, and he was such a terrible boss that they all decided they wanted to leave. So they all left and founded Fairchild Semiconductor. And because they were already in Palo Alto with Shockley, they founded Fairchild Semiconductor also in Palo Alto. Then Fairchild became the spawn of basically every semiconductor company of any importance in the world. Because Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore got fed up with Fairchild and founded Intel. Jerry Sanders founded AMD. He had worked there. Charlie Spork moved National Semiconductor, which was actually founded on the East Coast. It was in trouble. They hired Charlie Spork out of Fairchild to revive National Semiconductor, and he moved the company to California, to Silicon Valley. So you had all of these chip manufacturers, and that's where the name comes from. Lockheed had a facility. IBM had a facility. So, there were a couple of research facilities in Silicon Valley too, but it was mostly at this point just manufacturing components. Ampex is one of the few technology companies in Silicon Valley at this time that is actually manufacturing a product, a finished product for other people. It's not just producing chips. That's right. So, it really comes as no surprise that they had to pull from Ampex for so many of their early employees because it's not like today where you can't you know swing a dead cat without hitting 50 consumer electronics engineers or programmers <laughs> walking down the street in Silicon Valley. It wasn't that kind of Silicon back then, so to speak. So they kept pulling from the people they knew. So Al Alcorn, Ampex, Larry Emmons and Steve Mayer at uh, Grass Valley, Ampex. Now Steve Bristow, Ampex. Steve Bristow was very bright. He unfortunately just passed away. Beginning of last year, I want to say. Very bright guy, very good engineer. He went through the same work-study program that Al Alcorn did, that we discussed last episode, where he worked six months and then went to Berkeley for six months. And so when Alcorn was through at Ampex, Bristow was the next guy that Ampex brought in through the University of Berkeley, California Berkeley's work-study program.
0: is this. New guy, fresh out of college, training ground.
1: Exactly. And then because of the financial difficulty that they were having, he actually wasn't able to continue at Ampex for the entirety of his college for the six-month stints. He follows Nolan to Nutting. He starts as a technician at Nutting, fixing faulty boards and whatnot. And then when Nolan leaves Nutting, Bristol becomes the head engineer at Nutting. Because Nutting doesn't have a really deep bench of talent, so they They pull the intern, (laughs) and he's still a college student at this point, so they pull the intern to be their chief engineer. He ends up putting the finishing touches on two-player computer space. Uh, I mentioned that Nolan had been contracted to do that at the very beginning of Atari in the last episode. I neglected to mention that they decided not to use his version. So Atari did not get any royalties off of the two-player computer space that Nutting did, in fact, release in 1972. But Bristol put the finishing touches on the two-player version of Computer Space that they did release. Then his work stint was done, so then he went back to school. And while he finished up school, his last six months of school, he collected the coins on the Atari coin-op route. This is obviously before they sold it to Ted Dabney. So he had lots of contact and lots of connection with Nolan Bushnell already. And so when he finally graduated from college, they hired him to be engineer number two. With Al Alcorn. And so then when they created Key Games, he became the head engineer of Key Games. And Bill White, who I briefly mentioned before, who was running operations at Atari for a while, he then became the CFO of Atari briefly, but then they moved him to Key Games to be the finance guy. And they took a guy named uh, Gil Williams, another Ampex guy, who was a manufacturing guy, and they put him to be the manufacturing guy at Key Games. So they built a whole team at Key Games based on the second stringers at Atari, but they were still very talented people. Second stringer, in this case, does not mean they weren't good. And, you know, had Joe Keenan there to run it. You know what
0: this sounds like? What? You have Atari. It's trying to bring in this new age of video game, the foundation. Hmm. You have Key Game, (laughs) which is this secret ally. That is the second foundation, Atari, the first foundation, falls to the mule, (laughs) i.e. financial crazy of people coming in. The second foundation secretly saves the
1: day. I like it. I really like that. Just like foundation versus second foundation, too, turns out all the smart people were at Key Games. Yep. Because Joseph Keenan was actually a really good administrator and a really good salesman. He was really good at running Key Games. And Steve Bristow, because he had worked for Nutting and had worked for Atari, he really understood coin-operated games. So while Lloyd Warman was flailing at Atari, Steve Bristow was doing a very good job. They did not, to my knowledge, they released their own version of Grand Track called Formula K. And my understanding is they did not have the same problems with their driving games that Atari was having. I could be mistaken, but they were a well-oiled machine and they were making money. It's very possible that they could have just decided to buy themselves out, buy Atari share out of themselves, and then go off and be their own thing and let Atari die. I don't know if they seriously considered that or not, but they theoretically could have done that. They ended up saving Atari, and the main mover on that front was a fellow named Ron Gordon. Ron Gordon was a salesman, came up in the TV business, and then founded his own consulting business to help companies set up international sales called a multinational corporation. He came to Atari, not the other way around. He just showed up on their doorstep one day in 1973 and was like, you've got a really hot product. Let me help you get it around the world. And so he became Atari's VP of international, but he was really an independent contractor through his multinational corporation. As we discussed, the Japan venture didn't go too well, and there were some other international ventures where they didn't have subsidiaries. They just had partnerships that, that didn't go very well either. But they were still selling some games overseas, and Ron Gordon was working on a commission basis. And so Ron Gordon saw his golden goose basically about to die and didn't like the sound of that. So he stepped in, and he helped Nolan. Nolan is a wreck, and Nolan isn't a good businessman, and Nolan hates firing people. So Nolan was not well-equipped, to deal with the crisis, and his management team is clueless, and you know they let Wakefield, the president, go after the disastrous 1974 results. Gordon steps in. Gordon claims he was president of Atari for a time. I'm not sure if he ever officially held the title of president, but even according to Al Alcorn, he basically acted like the president, even if he didn't have the title. He cleaned house on the executive staff fired all of these Hewlett-Packard people and whatnot that Bushnell couldn't fire himself because he's terrible at that kind of thing. He personally went to the banks and worked out arrangements to get some money for Atari through the banks. And most importantly, he convinced all the parties involved to merge Atari and Key into one company and have Joe run that company as president, Joe Keenan.
0: he knows what he's doing.
1: That's right. So a few things happen then. Al Alcorn comes back from his leave of absence, which Ron Gordon, is, my understanding, is also instrumental in, and redesigns Grand Track so that it doesn't need that national chip anymore and that it's better engineered, works better in the field, etc. Grand Track becomes a huge hit. 10,000-unit kind of huge hit. Joe Keenan comes in and provides kind of the steady leadership That the company needs. And then Key Games, which continues to exist as a subsidiary, even though they're merged, Key Games kind of still exists a little bit, in part because there's still some of this exclusivity stuff, Mm -hmm. and so they want to have a separate Key line.
0: It's sort of like they took the uh, cloth off of the hidden ally relationship there and then made it more cemented together.
1: But Key comes up with a new game that really takes the market by storm called Tank. Tank is, on the 2600, it's basically what they call combat. So mm-hmm. you're familiar with it. Yeah, and I own a guy's. copy of that one. Yep. Tank was the brainchild of Steve Bristow, who we mentioned before. He liked the idea of computer space and space war. More space war than computer space. This idea of two guys fighting each other, trying to shoot each other, score the most points. What really killed computer space more than anything was the Newtonian physics. Inertia, momentum. It was difficult to control for somebody that didn't think in terms of Newtonian physics and the laws of momentum and all of that. It's in space. You can't just turn on a dime. You can't just stop on a dime. But I can in a video game. Not if you're being realistic, which computer space was to a certain degree.
0: So well, he liked that's
1: just silly. Yeah. So he liked that idea, but he wanted to ground it, literally. He wanted something far easier to control. So he chose tanks. And he chose a dual joystick control scheme because he had driven a Caterpillar in his youth where, you know, you pull them in different directions to, to rotate, pull them in the same direction. to yeah, move. I'm, I'm, I'm very direction. familiar
0: with that. I used to ride on one of my uncle's farm, what's called a Mad Max, and it's a six-wheeled amphibious vehicle. So you pull both levers towards you, you go forward. Mm-hmm. If you push both levers ahead, you go back. And then you do one or the other, and then that set of wheels moves, and the other set of wheels don't do anything, and that's how you turn left and right.
1: Exactly. Bristow had driven a Caterpillar as part of a a summer job or whatever in his own youth, and so he came up with a dual joystick control scheme for this tank that functioned exactly the way that that you say. And of course, it's on Earth, so the momentum stuff isn't a problem. He came up with the basic idea, and then he gave it to a new engineer named Lyle Rains to finish implementing La Raines developed a maze that the two tanks would navigate through and also put RAM into the game, the first time an Atari game and they had random access memory, so that there could be mines dotting certain parts of the maze as an additional obstacle. And then they had this new game called Tank that was a one-on-one dueling game where you control a tank and you try to shoot your opponent's tank more often than he shoots you. Tank becomes a massive hit. It sells something like 15,000 units before it's done. I mean, it's huge. It's so big that it breaks exclusivity it's so popular and people want it so much and nobody else has anything like it because it's not getting cloned that multiple distributors are willing to take it and ignore exclusivity on it. And that's kind of the beginning of the end of exclusivity. It doesn't disappear overnight. But starting from that point, video game distributor exclusivity really starts to go away because you get more and more unique video game concepts that even though there is a lot of cloning in video games, not every concept gets cloned. And so... It gets to the point where if you don't have this big hit or you don't have that big hit, you're just in trouble. And so it's better to not have it exclusively and get it at all than have exclusivity, and some people don't get it. So it's beginning the end for exclusivity, and it's a huge hit. So Grand Track and Tank are huge hits. There's competent management now. Atari is finally stabilized, and it's finally bringing in good money and is finally starting to turn a decent profit. So now it's finally time to start thinking about expanding the company into other areas. That's good! It is. It really is. And of course, the logical area to expand Atari into now is the home. Home video games have been a thing since 1972 with the release of the Magnavox Odyssey. But the Odyssey never did all of that well. It was kind of primitive. It was kind of limited gameplay for what you got. It was kind of expensive for what you got. It wasn't that great a system. and you it had to am- put those
0: plastic overlays on the television.
1: Right. And it was an amazing piece of engineering for the time, that they could even get something that was cost-effective in the home at all. is pretty impressive, but it's just, it was a little too soon for that kind of thing to really be viable. So it does okay. Oh, Between 72 and 75, it sells somewhere between 300 and 350,000 units, which is not a flop, but it's not exciting either. Nobody else really gets into the market. The URL, Universal Research Laboratory, does in 1974, basically because they have a lot of leftover components from their arcade business, and they want to try to get rid of some of them. But they don't do well. They actually include a television in the game for the home. It Hmm. comes with a television. So it's, like, hugely expensive. just doesn't do well. There's not much of a home market. Nolan's always wanted to be in the home market, and we know that Nolan was pushing this early because there is a document that survives from August 1973 where Nolan is setting out goals and objectives for the engineering department, and one of those goals is to do a full-color home game. So he was thinking about it for a long time. Again, He was asking them for a lot of outlandish things at that time. He wanted a 20-player version of Gotcha at that time, too, and all this other crazy stuff. He has wild ideas. He's good at dreams. He's not good at execution.
0: Or what's really viable with the technology at hand.
1: Right. And so in 1973, there was no way they could execute a home game. But now that the company is stabilizing, here in 1974, they kind of can think about executing a home game. And the other thing is that at this point, we finally have the first large-scale integration circuits arriving on the scene, LSIs. These are circuits that integrate uh, so many transistors on a single microchip that you're now talking about a single chip that is powerful enough to do a broad range of applications. We're not talking a microprocessor quite yet. We're not talking about something programmable. As a chip. But we're talking about a chip sophisticated enough that you could theoretically do a full video game, a simple one, on that chip. Arcade games at the time are all TTL technology using lots of chips. It's integrated circuits, but they use lots of chips. The Magnavox Odyssey is diode to transistor technology, which means it's not using integrated circuits. It has transistors in it, it's still digital, but it's using a combination of transistors and diodes, and there's nothing. There's no integrated circuits in it. Now it's looking like you may be able to put Pong, which is fairly primitive, on a single microchip. And the guy that actually comes up with this concept is a guy named Harold Lee. Harold Lee was a production engineer at Atari that got burned out by working at Atari and decided in 1974 to quit the company.
0: Was he originally an Ampex guy?
1: No, he was not. He came from a company that was actually a a chip manufacturer and he actually designed chips for them. So he had chip design experience, which the rest of Atari's engineers did not. That still was very unusual at the time to have chip design experience if you were not actually working for a chip designer. So Harold Lee gets burned out and decides to quit. But because of his chip expertise, Al Alcorn, who's kind of back in engineering again, wants to keep him on to create a sync chip that will serve as an anti-piracy device, a chip that just makes their boards harder to copy, because they're always fighting the the pirates and the clone makers. Harold Lee goes away and works on that for a little bit, but decides that there's no point, because a chip's going to take nine months to design. The arcade industry moves so quickly, you're introducing a new game every other month, that by the time you had a chip designed for the arcade games, that chip would be obsolete. It just moves too quickly. But while he was doing this, a friend of his that had worked at the same company with him named Bob Brown was very interested in experimenting with devices that hook up to a television set. The thing he was interested in was not actually a video game. It was something called a scope, which allowed you to plug your stereo and your television in together. And while you're playing stereo music, pretty lights and colors flash across your television screen.
0: Think of how, if you listen to music and you have a visualizer on your PC, Mm -hmm. it's like that, except they did it before the PC.
1: That's right. But these things required a very—these GoScopes required a very expensive hi-fi setup. And so he was interested in if there was a way you could recreate that technology just on your television. So he was looking into that kind of technology, and he was talking with Harold Lee, and he said— You know, I wonder if Atari could put their Pong game on a single chip and hook that into a television. Harold Lee was like, yeah, maybe. And so then they took that to Al Alcorn, and Al Alcorn was like, yeah, hey, maybe. And then they took it to Nolan, and Nolan was like, yeah, that sounds fun, but, you know, do it, but don't spend too much money on it. You know, just kind of a skunk works. Now, I have to pause and say again that there are multiple versions of the story of how Home Pong was conceived. (laughs) Three people and three stories.
0: Oh, dear. So we don't have a definitive one with this. So we have three stories we have to hear.
1: Bob Brown says basically what I just told you, that Harold Lee was working on the sync chip, and he was interested in this GoScope thing, and he came to Harold Lee and said that, wouldn't it be great if Atari could do this? Al Alcorn says that he gave Harold Lee the project to do the sync chip, and then Harold Lee came back to him with the idea of doing Pong on a chip. Harold Lee says that when he left Atari, Al Alcorn told him to come up with a a Pong-on-a-chip idea and do that as an independent contract. Al and Bob's stories meet on several points. Al says Harold was working on an anti-piracy sync chip. Bob Brown says Harold Lee was working on an anti-piracy sync chip. Al Alcorn says that Harold Lee came to him with the idea. Bob says it was his idea first, but he does say that it was him and Harold Lee that brought the idea to Al. Harold Lee, who actually designed the chip, is the only one that says he's not the one that came up with it, that Al Alcorn told him about it, and he makes no mention of the piracy chip. My assumption is that Harold Lee is slightly misremembering, and that, in fact, when he left when he was burnt out, which is what he said, that Al Alcorn asked him to do the sync chip as an independent contractor. And then he came back with Bob's idea to do the Pong on a chip. I think he's probably just forgetting that that piracy chip project was ever a project. Because, I mean, Al and Bob both remember the piracy chip. So in this case, two out of three. Remember a specific thing,
0: so more likely to exist.
1: Right. But it is worth noting that the person that actually designed the chip, Harold Lee, says that Al Alcorn told him to go do it. So I don't know. The point is, these three guys between them put this chip together. Lee does the design, Alcorn does the debugging and and wire wrapping, and Bob Brown is hired into Atari to write the test program for the chip to make sure that it's functioning properly. The three of them put this chip together. When it's done, they find a company willing to manufacture it, and they prepare to create their own home version of Palm. Atari does. Problem is trying to find someone to sell it.
0: That is the problem.
1: The Magnavox Odyssey was sold only through Magnavox official dealers. It was sold in stores that offered Magnavox stereos and televisions on an exclusive basis. They're authorized dealers. They never tried to achieve wider mass market distribution. Atari's options for wider distribution were... Basically, the world of toys or the world of electronics, because it's a game, so it can be seen as a toy, but it's complex electronics, so it could be seen as an electronic. They take it to Toy Fair in January 1975, January or February. I forget exactly when it was held. They don't get a single order from a toy company at the show. It's too expensive. Now, it's, it's cheap for what it is. They're looking at something that can be offered for just under $100 that they would sell to retailers for 50 to 70 and then they'd mark up to 100 Toy companies did not sell $100 products back then, except maybe some bicycles. We talked a little bit about this in, I think, our console cycle episode. So toy stores didn't want it because it was over 30 bucks, Way too expensive. On the electronics front, Tandy did show interest in it, the parent company of Radio Shack, at the toy fair but they wanted an anticipation discount which is a standard term in the toy industry and in the electronics industry but Atari having no consumer experience was kind of appalled by that so they turned that down they came away from toy fair with no orders they had no idea what to do next
0: for people who may not know what is an anticipation discount
1: an anticipation discount basically you give them a discount in anticipation of the large order that they're going to place with you later ah okay. give us a discount now because you're we're going to be a regular customer of yours and you're going to get a lot of business from us in the future. Okay. They came away from Toy Fair with no orders and really weren't sure what to do next, but the guy that finally solved this for them is the next important Atari guy to enter our story, and that's Gene Lipkin. Gene Lipkin went way back in coin-op. He was the first guy that Atari brought in that had extensive coin-op experience before he joined the company. His father, Sol Lipkin, was a legend in the coin-operated shuffleboard business. He worked for a company called American Shuffleboard as a salesman, and he was known as one of the great salesmen in coin-operated shuffleboards of all things. So Gene grew up surrounded by the coin-op business, and then he went to work for Allied Leisure in 1969 as their head of sales. Allied Leisure was a Florida company that was a rather small company, but they really hit it big with Pong because they were one of the first companies to clone it, and they had a really great manufacturing line, and they were really good at manufacturing, and so their game, Paddle Battle, sold something like 17,000 units, like over double what Atari sold of Pong. Lipkin was the guy selling those games. He was promised a commission on each unit sold, and the management of Allied Leisure went back on the size of that commission with him. Oh. So... That made him no longer want to be at Allied Leisure. Yeah. He was very interested in Atari because at the time, Atari was experimenting with some location operation, too. They had a couple of shopping mall arcades open, and they were working on this multi-unit, kind of interchangeable, almost jukebox of games kind of idea. That was very much along the lines of something that Gene Lipkin thought was interesting and thought might be the future of the industry himself. And so he initially came into the company in late 1974 to work on that kind of thing and some of the operations side of things. And they gave him the title of like director of special projects or VP of special projects, just kind of a catch-all to get involved with that stuff. But then in early 1975, they dismissed their sales manager, Atari did, Pat Carnes, who had been with the company since almost the beginning. When Atari was first buying components, they were buying a lot of their components from a company called Kramer Electronics, and Pat Carnes was a salesman at Kramer Electronics. So again, back to the whole hiring the people we know thing, they hired the guy selling them their components to be their salesman for their arcade games. And, you know, I don't think Pat Carnes was probably a terrible salesman or anything, but in 1975, early, they decided to get rid of him. So they elevated Gene Lipkin to the position of vice president of sales and marketing because he had extensive coin-op sales experience, which also meant that he was in charge of getting this thing shepherded through the home. So Lipkin decides that since they didn't get any toy companies, they would go to what at the time was the largest retailer in America, Sears.
0: Sears, everyone's favorite retailer. That's right. Uh, Except not for much longer.
1: No. (laughs) And it's not really Sears anymore because they were bought by Kmart. Well, yes. Kmart I mean, was the surviving entity.
0: Yes, Kmart was the surviving entity, but they changed the parent company to Sears because Sears was a more recognizable name. Exactly. And the Kmart-Sears thing is going down in flames as we speak. Yes, it is. Anytime soon, that entire thing's probably going under.
1: You know, it's funny, uh, and this is a complete tangent, but of course, Sears, before it was a department store company, was a mail order company. Sears was the Amazon of its day. In the late 19th and early 20th century, they sent a catalog out all over the place, and people could mail order everything, all the way up to and including houses. You could mail order a house from Sears. The Sears
0: catalog is legendary. (laughs) The kids always wanted their Sears catalog for Christmas.
1: Right, because obviously the Sears catalog persisted even after they established department stores. But I mean, when they were very first established, They were a mail-order business based around that catalog. They were literally the Amazon of their day. Yep. So it's kind of sad that the company that was once the Amazon of their day didn't realize when the time came that they needed to be the Amazon of today.
0: Yeah. (laughs) With the global power that Sears had at the time, if it were to have become Amazon or done something akin to Amazon, it would be...
1: And it's and More it's,
0: powerful today.
1: Right. And it's, and it's kind of sad that they could not remember their own heritage because they essentially were Amazon
0: mm-hmm. in
1: 1900.
0: Yep. <laughs> Amazon will probably go down in flames at some point in 100 years or so right. when and, and something unless, else transitions. Unless
1: they adapt. I mean, some yeah. companies adapt to new stuff and other companies don't. And Sears is definitely a company that didn't adapt. But in the 1970s, they were the largest retailer in America. They were huge. And so Gene Lipkin cold calls Sears, and he calls the television department, because that's logical. Mm -hmm. Television department is not in any way interested. It's kind of funny. Sears' television department wasn't interested in the Odyssey back in the day either. Before Sanders Associates, Ralph Baer's company, made the deal with Magnavox, they were courting all of the TV manufacturers in the United States, including Warwick, which was the exclusive manufacturer of televisions for Sears. Warwick thought it was a really cool idea, and so they helped arrange a meeting with Sears. And the Sears guy was basically like, I don't want my department to turn into a babysitter. You know, he knew they'd have to, like, demonstrate the product to get people interested in it, and he didn't want people to just leave their kids in the television department and just play the game all day, Mm -hmm. discouraging fine, upstanding adults from entering the department and buying television. So... Sears' television department, this is probably a different guy by this point because it's several years later, but Sears' television department had a history of not being interested in video games. But the television guy knew that there was one guy in Sears that was actually very interested in the uh, video game, and that was a sporting goods buyer named Tom Quinn. I think we discussed this in our Console Cycle episode. In the fall and winter, the sporting goods department became a ping-pong table, pool table, rec room kind of department. It wasn't just selling baseballs and basketballs. Tom Quinn saw the video game as something that fit in very well in the rec room because you had table tennis and hockey and all of these sports concepts represented, however, primitively in video game form.
0: And then you have something that you can sell in the off-sport season. Mm -hmm, The Christmas item. Christmas, winter, fall.
1: Exactly. So he tried to get Magnavox to let him sell the Odyssey in Sears. They went so far as letting them put it in the catalog. So they let them put it in the catalog for 74 but they did not let them sell it in the stores. So Tom Quinn was looking for a video game at the exact time Atari was offering a video game. They got transferred to Tom Quinn, and he was just immediately enthusiastic. He showed up like two days later at Atari headquarters to demo the product and see what was going on, and he loved it. He absolutely wanted Sears to be involved with this. They still had to do a demonstration for his bosses, Mm because he was not the head buyer, but they got everyone on board, and so Sears agreed to do it. And this was so important, because Sears did a couple of things. First, Sears took all of the product that they could make in 1975. This has often been incorrectly termed as an exclusive arrangement. I think we talked about this before, but it was not actually exclusive. What they did is they got their order filled before anyone else. So when they ordered everything that Atari could make, they got everything. They got everything. everything. They got de facto exclusivity. Just for 1975 alone, for the first holiday. They brought in manufacturing experts to help Atari set up an assembly line. They used their bank to help finance the development of the assembly line. They brought in their testing specialists to help Atari get FCC approval in the testing process. They walked Atari through every step of being a consumer electronics manufacturing and sales company.
0: They didn't have to go by trial by fire. They had someone who really knew the business, had the contact, had the knowledge, and could just say, all right, Atari, today we're going down to the uh, FTC shop and we're going to put you in a suit and You're going to hold this thing and this thing, and you're going to bow like this, and then hand (laughs) him this thing, and then they'll wave their wand, and then you're blessed, and so you have FCC approval.
1: Exactly. (laughs) They also did all the marketing, all the advertising. Sears paid for all the advertising and marketing. And as
0: Sears is the biggest retailer of the era, it's like having Amazon or Walmart today running a major ad for a product.
1: Exactly. So this allowed Atari to succeed right out of the gate. They had a, a huge first year. They didn't sell as many as Magnavox, actually. Magnavox came out with a new system. Theirs was not on a single chip. Theirs was a three-chip set from Texas Instruments, but it was still a scaled-down version that just did the table tennis games and all of that. They sold more units because they were able to ramp up production faster because they were already in this business. But all of the excitement was generated by the Atari system. It played smoother. It played better. It was full color, which Magnavox was not. It had on-screen scoring, which at this point Magnavox did not. And it was just an all-around better system. And it was widely advertised. And this was the real beginning of the home video game boom. And we talked about the rise and fall of the dedicated console market in our Console Cycles episode. So I won't go into huge detail about that right now. But in terms of Atari... This was just another huge area that Atari was now involved in.
0: They're continuing to rise as they start going into the home.
1: And they're getting better and better finance. They took venture capital in 1975 through Don Valentine, who is a legendary venture capitalist now. But this was actually his first investment. He was not a legendary venture capitalist yet at that time, but he was a legendary salesman because he had come up through Fairchild, a national semiconductor, as a hotshot Salesman, and then had taken over the venture capital arm, or had established a venture capital arm rather, for an organization called the Capital Research Group, Sequoia Capital, which then became legendary because they funded Atari, they funded Electronic Arts, they funded uh, I want to say Oracle, and they also they did some secondary funding on Apple. They were not the primary funder, but you know they funded a lot of big companies in tech history. But Atari was their first investment, and it was Home Pong that convinced him to invest because. Coin-Op still had this kind of shady, kind of organized, crimey image to it, even though that was slowly going away. As soon as he saw this home product, he was like, yes, we'll do that. So they've gotten some venture funding that has helped stabilize the company. They've got this new product line. The arcade stuff is going well, all things considered. Video games in general are kind of up and down in this period. Pre-Space Invaders, they're not as humongous. They've started a pinball division because pinball is still kind of the bread and butter of coin-op. The pinball division doesn't do great. They go solid state. They're very early on solid state, using microprocessor instead of a bunch of coils and relays and all those electromechanical parts. It's very expensive for them to do pinball in California versus pinball in Chicago, because there's an entire infrastructure that is built up. It's not just that the manufacturers of the pinball tables are there. It's that the people that make the glass are there. It's that the people that make the play fields are there. It's the people that make all the little switches and all the little knockers, and all little, the little doodads. All little doodads have all the built bearings up. that are used for the ball. Right. So all of the secondary infrastructure is sprung up in Chicago around the pinball companies, so they can just do it cheaper there. Plus, they have more experience; so they can manufacture it better. So Atari has a pinball division in this period. Never does that great, but they're expanding there. They're expanding into the home. They have more money. This is now firmly a company that is on the rise again. And they have this great management team. Nolan Bushnell is still there on the top to be the visionary of it all.
0: The CEO, the cheerleader, the guy who goes, oh, that's awesome. Let's do that.
1: Joe Keenan is now the president, and he is a great day-to-day manager. He's a little more professional, a little more business-oriented than the rest of the management team. And he knows how to keep the day-to-day humming. So he got, is from
0: the second foundation. He yes. has come and pretty much managed the company.
1: Al Alcorn is running R&D, starting with Home Pong. He's running research and development. Grass Valley's reporting into him. He's a guy that is excited about new technology and understands the potential of new technology and is never afraid to take a risk. You know, He joined Atari because he figured, it'll be fun for a couple of years, and then I'll just get a real job. He's not afraid of failure which is a good guy to have in charge of R&D because he's willing to take a chance on crazy things. You have Steve Bristow now. Now that the two companies have merged, Steve Bristow is running engineering. He's an experienced coin-op engineer now, so he knows how to get stuff production-ready and get stuff so that it it performs well out in the field. You got that? Gene Lipkin, with his extensive coin-op experience, is running sales and marketing. He really knows what he's doing. He's a good schmoozer. He's good at meeting with all the distributors, making them feel comfortable, making them take product, even when sometimes maybe they don't want to take the product. You know, just very solid all around.
0: you got a dream team. Mm -hmm. So obviously Atari's going to rise and rise and rise in the glory and the glorious empire it is today.
1: Well, it did for a while. The problem was that even a well-financed Atari, which they kind of are now, is still an Atari that is burning through capital at a faster rate than it needs to to be able to push forward. The new home market, which stands to be their more lucrative market, is a market where it is very seasonal. You are only selling this product in the three or four months running up to Christmas. It's not a year-round product because it's so expensive.
0: It's not like today where I can go down and buy an Xbox a PlayStation, or whatever. Not a Switch, because no one has that. But (laughs) it's really changed from back then when the only time you bought a console was Christmas.
1: Right. And obviously today, there's still a boost in sales in that October, November, December period. Yes. But it is not quite so stark. I mean, you basically did all of your sales of a dedicated console in the Christmas season. So what you had to do was, throughout the year you're building up inventory. You're spending money building up your Christmas inventory while really not making that much money. Maybe even losing money. Just waiting for that third quarter. Atari's case, I think, it was the third quarter. Maybe it was their second quarter. But you're waiting for that one quarter where it all balances out and you make all the money. Coin-op is a little bit seasonal, too. It, coin-op is not nearly as seasonal as the console thing. But, You have your AMOA show late in the year, November, October, because people are starting to think about what they're going to put out in the winter and in the spring, which is kind of when you're going to get a lot of your business because then by the summer, the kids are all outside and they're not necessarily hanging around in the arcade anymore. If you're someone that runs a boardwalk or an amusement park, then maybe summer's your time to shine, but it's a bit of a slow period, so you kind of get your sales in that winter and spring take a bit of a break in the summer, and then see what's coming out new in the fall and order again for the next cycle. So it's not nearly as seasonal because you do get some year-round sales, but they're both kind of seasonal businesses. So Atari is having to invest a lot of money at various times and then wait for that money to pay off, particularly in consumer. And the dedicated console business is a really cutthroat difficult business because a lot of companies come in, flood the market, the gameplay is fairly simplistic, so you have to come up with something new. Coming up with something new means designing a brand new LSI, because these are dedicated systems.
0: We don't have consoles with cartridges or That's right. cards or chips or something. It's the whole thing.
1: So every time you have to design a new chip, which takes R&D and it takes time, and it's time you can't necessarily afford because the industry is moving so quickly. Atari is unique amongst the major players in that they're doing their own chips. They're unique that they have the in-house expertise. You know, Coleco is using the uh, General Instruments Pong on a chip that we talked about in our Console Cycles episode. Magnavox is using the Texas Instruments stuff it's contracted. It's also using the Pong on a chip stuff. The other major companies don't have their in-house chips. So Atari has that advantage because they've built up a microelectronics department, which by this point is run by Bob Brown, who had written the test program, that is able to create chips. They stole a bunch of people from National Semiconductor to do that. So they've got that advantage. But it does mean a lot of R&D and a lot of time. So they don't want to do that. They want to get off of that. And so the Grass Valley people, the advanced R&D people, particularly Steve Meyer and one of Grass Valley's employees, Ron Milner, are starting to ponder how do we get ahead of this curve? And they started by saying, well, why don't we create a very, very advanced LSI system that plays tank and plays ping pong games and plays a couple of other things, and it just plays much, much more than the typical dedicated console does, so it doesn't become obsolete quite so quickly. That was their starting point. And then they morphed from there when they started looking at the emerging microprocessor market into, well why don't we take this a step further and have a CPU in a console and then have ROM chips in individual cartridges that plug into that CPU and reprogram that CPU to play different games?
0: Might work.
1: Exactly. And so it very quickly evolves from crazy complicated dedicated console into this concept that becomes the video computer system. And Steve Mayer and Ron Milner are the main drivers of that. They start looking for a chip to meet their needs, and they're focused in on Motorola 6800, which is uh, a very good recently released chip. There's Intel stuff as well and the Zilog Z80, but that's a little expensive. Motorola's kind of expensive too, but they're kind of honing in on that. And then they discover MOS Technology, which has just created a chip called the 6502 that we have talked about before. And the 6502 was basically a budget version of the 6800. The pins are different. They actually created a cost-reduced version of the 6800 called the 6501, where the pins were the same. And the 6502, which functions similarly to the 6800, but with a different pin layout. Motorola sued the 6501 out into oblivion. Mm -hmm. It's like no, (laughs) that's our design. But since 6502 had a different pin layout, that was a new design. So, they learned that the 6502 was coming that was just a ridiculously cheap chip. It was like a $20 chip, which is ridiculous. So, they came to Westcon to look at that chip and meet with Chuck Peddle, who had designed it. He had worked at Motorola on the 6800 and then had left Motorola because Motorola did not want to create a cost reduced version of the chip. And he went to Moss in Pennsylvania and convinced them to let him do it. Then the company was bought by Commodore and it became Commodore's. Personal chip manufacturer which is why the 6502 is in the commodore 64 and all that good stuff they see the 6502 that is really cheap and seems to have most of the functionality that they need so they see that at westcon they enter negotiations and they end up actually using a even cheaper version called the 6507 that i think is available for under ten dollars which has even more limited functionality it has some of the pins removed i think but it's an even more limited version but it's even cheaper So now that they have the 6507 microprocessor to form the heart of the system, they know they'll be able to do something pretty darn good at a reasonable price. They will need a custom graphics chip, however. They they need a a custom chip for that because the CPU cannot handle the graphics and all the other stuff that it needs to handle. This is a chip that's far more complicated than anything that the microelectronics department can do in house, and it's more complicated than anything that the people at Grass Valley can do. They bring in an absolutely brilliant chip designer named J. Miner from a company called Centertech, which is already serving as the second source for their chips, for their dedicated console chips. So they already have the relationship. Centertech doesn't really want to let J. Miner go. He's their head microprocessor designer and he's a genius. But they convince him by saying, you're going to get the order on this too. You know, you're going to be second source on this chip, just like you're a source for us now. So you have him help us design it. He can remain dual-hatted. He can remain on your payroll, too. He'll design this chip for us, and then you'll reap the rewards because you're going to get all the orders from us. And so they're kind of like, well, okay. Hmm. J-Minor uh, designs the television interface adapter, the TIA chip, that serves as the heart of the system. He later goes on to be the principal designer of the Commodore Amiga. I mean, he's a, he's a big deal. That all kind of comes together over the course of 76 into 77, but they just don't have the money to set up the manufacturing of that, because all of their money is tied up in their current inventory. They're bringing in money, and they're plowing it right back into new dedicated consoles. So they're going to need a fresh influx of capital if they want this to go forward. They consider taking the company public, but the stock market goes through a little hiccup right in the middle of this period. Not a serious one, but bad enough that it scares them off on going public because they don't think they're going to be able to get the price. So they start looking for companies to acquire them. They're really more interested in uh, an entertainment company like a Disney or an MCA. But those companies aren't really interested in them. They have a connection. is Don Valentine, who is on the board of Atari because he is invested in them as a venture capitalist. He is the venture capital arm for Capital Research Group which has analysts and whatnot. It's an analyst company. And Gordon Crawford at Capital Research Group has become really interested in and really close to Warner Communications. Now, we've talked about the Warner purchase already. I don't need to go into Steve Ross's background and Warner's background again because we talked about that in our Atari brand episode. Right. But I hadn't brought up that connection before. So that's the connection that gets them going. So Gordon Crawford goes to Manny Gerard at Warner On behalf of Atari. Manny Gerard, who we talked about a little bit before, was an entertainment analyst, considered one of the best analysts in his field, a real financial whiz and a guy that really understood entertainment, and had been brought into uh, Warner, into the office of the president, to look for new areas that the Warner Communications conglomerate could expand into, new companies they could acquire. So when Gordon comes to Manny with this company, He's intrigued right away, and so he goes out and takes a look, and he falls in love with the VCS. He sees this as a product that could be absolutely huge, and so he convinces Warner to do the deal, and he takes the lead on doing that deal, which uh, concludes in late 1976 for $28 million. Warner buys Atari Lock, Stock, and Barrel and provides the funding that they need to be able to launch this video computer system product, the VCS, in the fall of 1977.
0: And thus starts the dual-headed situation of the Atari infrastructure and the Warner Communications empire.
1: That's right. Though in the beginning, there's not that much oversight really from Warner. They're mostly just letting Atari get on with what they're doing because they're already impressed with what Atari has going. The management seems reasonably competent. We have the dream team. That's right. And they've got this hot new product they're getting ready to launch. So they basically let them roll with it, which it ends up being a mistake. Atari is doing very well for itself and is even doing well for itself in this consumer market. But the VCS is a whole other order of complexity and they screw the manufacturing up. There's really no other good way to put it. They have some quality control issues in the first year. More importantly, they build it to long. They're building all the way through December 24th. That's way too late to be building. They didn't mean to. Production got delayed. So they had a nice rollout. I've talked to Malcolm Kuhn, as I said, who was the director of sales for the consumer division at this time. They had a rollout all in place. They knew that they weren't going to be able to manufacture enough to meet all demand, so they at the Consumer Electronics Show in July, they put an allocation system together and allocated consoles based on availability and based on how well they thought the retailers would do with it, how important the retailer was to them, etc. They had an allocation system all in place. They had a manufacturing schedule all in place. Manufacturing falls behind. You should really stop manufacturing by about December 10th or so, because that's about your last shot to get inventory shipped to stores in time to still be bought before Christmas. They go too long. They sold out of their inventory of, of what they allocated in advance, but then it turned out that when they kept pushing the manufacturing back, that they couldn't sell everything through because there was stuff left over after Christmas. Then there were some quality control problems in that initial batch, and so they started getting some returns in early 1978 as well, of systems that were defective. We always get a few returns, but they were getting more returns than they would have liked. Their sales volume goes up, but they actually lose money. This period of time when the coin-op stuff is kind of desultory, it's kind of... Meh. Yeah, well, coin-op video is kind of on a downward trend in 77 and 78 pre-Space Invaders. There's not really a lot of big hits that come out. Atari has a few smaller, minor hits, but they're hits that are only selling a couple of thousand uh, units apiece. Breakout in 1976 was kind of their last huge hit, and we've talked about the creation of Breakout in the past with Jobs and Wozniak and all that, but it sold over 10,000 units, but that was kind of the last massive seller they had. 77, 78, not such great sellers. Pinball is trying to get on track, and they're just having difficulty getting on track, so CoinOp is providing no real help. It's not doing terribly, but it's not doing great. Now they're losing money on the VCS because they just had this problem with, with shipping too late.
0: And it seems logically they shouldn't have a problem selling the VCS and losing money on it. But because of the manufacturing and running the run too long and all these other mitigating factors, they ultimately lose money.
1: Right. And so there's, there are changes made. As I said, Malcolm Kuhn was the director of sales. He was hired in 1976 for the full-on launch of their dedicated console line after the Sears exclusive period in 1975. He basically tells them there's no way we can move these systems in January, and so he's fired.
0: Oh, so this is the start of chipping away at the Dream Team.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he wasn't part of what we had described earlier as the Dream Team. He's lower down on the management chain.
0: But it might conceivably be the start of it.
1: But he's fired for that reason. And Warner decides that they need to bring in some better management and some better equipped management into the company to right the ship a little bit. They start looking for a consultant that can come in and look over the consumer business, put some procedures in place in the consumer business, and get this thing back on track. The head of book publishing division at Warner, a guy named Bill Sarnoff, tells them that he thinks the only guy that's really up for that job is a former classmate of his in the textile business named Ray Kassar.
0: Because obviously the textile business completely relates to the home video game console business.
1: Well, let's take a couple of steps back here on that. First of all, the consumer electronic business is so new at this point. There are no veterans in the consumer electronic business. Consumer electronic business really started in the early 70s when with calculators. I mean, yes, radio and television are consumer electronics, but that's not at all the same kind of business because that wasn't the rapidly changing business. You know, you didn't buy a new television every two years, (laughs) you know, unlike now. Right. So there was no consumer electronic business. Ray Cassar was in the consumer business. He, at Burlington Industries, where he had been for 30 years, he was in, for a long time, their home furnishings division. So that's selling sofas and chairs and whatnot to people. He was involved in marketing, and he was involved in sales to the public of higher-end items. So, I mean, he had an experience that made a certain amount of sense to come in and take over a consumer division of, a consumer electronics company, remembering that there are no veterans, <laughs> that there are no experienced people in that direct field. Ray Kassar had no interest at all. I think we might have discussed this in coming to Atari. He was no longer at Burlington. He had lost out in 1972 on the top job at the company. Burlington was a very big, very political, very multidivisional company uh, and pretty cutthroat. And he lost out for the top spot. And then <laughs> he was pushed out of the company altogether after that. He had his own business now, selling cotton shirts made from Egyptian cotton, and he was very happy in his own little business. It was a business he understood. It was a small business. I think he already had a decent amount of money, and this was making him a little more money, and he was totally fine with that.
0: He was kept busy, and he was living a comfortable life.
1: When Warner Communications decides they want somebody, and we'll see this with a couple of other Atari hires too later down the line, when they decide they want somebody, they get that somebody. They pursue them and offer them whatever it takes to get that somebody.
0: We will make you an offer you cannot refuse.
1: Right. And they gave him enough perks. Uh, He wanted to live in San Francisco and commute, because that was the closest thing to New York that they had in the area. He's a big city guy. (laughs) Then he wanted a car with a driver in order to commute into work. Not out of any vanity, but first he couldn't drive. He's a New Yorker.
0: You walk, you take the subway, you... Maybe take a cab.
1: Still today, I think only something like 40% of New Yorkers even have a driver's license. I mean, a lot of people don't even bother to get one. Yeah. So it wasn't out of vanity that he felt he needed to be personally chauffeured. It's because he wasn't a good driver. And also then he could use that time to get work done because he could be working in the back. He wanted lots of control and... He wanted, you know, a bigger salary than maybe was reasonable for the job. But, I mean, he was trying to throw out stuff that would basically stop them from coming back to him. And the thing is, they kept agreeing to everything. So he finally agreed to take it on. And it was a consultant position. He wasn't planning to stay. But he finally agreed to take it on because they just made him such a great offer that it was too good an opportunity for him to pass up. He'd be insane to pass it up. And it was only temporary anyway. He could go back to his beloved New York (laughs) when it was over. Yeah, in like a month or two. But I think probably Warner all along was planning to rope him in and keep him. (laughs) But they started out, you know, they start you out with the small. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They get you in with the consulting gig and then from there. So in March 1978, Ray comes out to California to be the general manager of the consumer division and evaluate this Atari operation. Even though he's the general manager, which would technically mean that Joe and Nolan are ahead of him as president and chairman of the company and co-CEOs of the company, he really reports directly in to Manny because he's there on behalf of Warner to fix things.
0: He's the man on the ground from Warner going, all right, what's going on here? Tell me what's going on. Here's my suggestion. And he's reporting to Manny.
1: That's right. He told me, and he's told other people as well, that, He believed that his mandate was to go in and figure out how to sell the company, identify the good assets so that they could sell. That's his memory of it. I mean, that's his legitimate memory of it. I find it hard to believe that Warner was looking to cut its ties that quickly. That would be cutting and running on their investment pretty fast. They just bought it in September, October 1976. So looking to suddenly cut it, in early 1978, just because they had one bad sales year. I don't know. I wonder if he may not be, but that was his impression, at least as he remembers it today, his impression was that he was brought in to sell the company. But he fell in love with the potential of the VCS as well. He thought that that was a solid product and that there was no reason that that was a product that couldn't sell. So he became a champion for the VCS. So he started making changes in the company in an attempt to make it more viable. He instituted a far more rigorous quality control on the manufacturing of the BCS, and he brought in a new head of manufacturing, Paul Malloy, whose job was to clean up the manufacturing line and and make this stuff all work much better. He put together an advertising campaign, They had advertised the VCS, but they had done all their advertising in-house. They didn't have an outside agency. So he went and found an outside agency and helped develop an advertising campaign with them in order to market the product more effectively. The sales team, which at this time was led by a guy named Don Thompson, did what they could to kind of push retailers to take the product. Now, they figured that they could probably double their volume. They did 400,000 units in 1977. They figured the way the market would grow, that they could double that and do about 800,000 units in 1978. They probably could have. The problem was, which I think we've discussed before, is that at this exact moment, the dedicated console market was completely collapsing because the programmables were taking over the high end of the market. The deeply discounted units that were a year old and were more simple were taking over the low end of the market. So you were either buying a programmable console or if you couldn't buy that, you were buying a really cheap, older, dedicated console. Nobody was buying the new consoles in the middle of the market that were retailing in the $70 to $100 range. So that market was in the process of completely collapsing and that inventory was starting to become a problem. At the same time, the electronic handheld game business, these simple LED games that Mattel had spearheaded in 1977 with Mattel Football, were starting to really take off. They were cheaper, they were simpler, but they were still selling well, and toy buyers were probably a little more comfortable with that because it was a cheaper product, and they were more comfortable with cheaper products. They were never really, toy buyers were never really sure in this period what to do with that whole video game thing. That was a little bit, Dicey, which is why department stores were such an important part of the selling of things like Pong in the beginning. So retailers have come to believe that the video game market is not going to grow. Retail buyers have decided that the dedicated consoles are on their way out, the electronic handhelds are on the way in, that there is a certain segment of the population that's more well-off that will certainly still buy some of these programmable consoles, but the market is not really going to grow. So retailers resisted buying inventory in 1978. So of those 800,000 systems that Atari got manufactured under this new, more efficient, more high-quality manufacturing line that Paul Malloy has put together, they sell 500,000 of them or so through to retailers.
0: Leave 3,000 left.
1: Sitting in warehouses. And they've got dedicated product that's starting to pile up in warehouses, too, because that's just not selling to anybody anymore. This is a bit of a problem. It looks like Atari is, once again, even though its sales keep increasing,
0: starting to go down,
1: they're going to lose money again. Not huge amounts of money, but they're going to lose some money. So this puts the Warner management in full-on crisis mode. Nolan and Joe have not been around as much since they sold the company. They got their stock options. They got their money. They're they're doing well. They're not keeping their eye on the ball as much because it's not— their baby anymore. You know, it's Warners, even though they're still managing it. And they've got a little bit of financial flexibility now. They don't get all of their money up front, but they've got some money up front. So it's one of these things where there's a trade show and then maybe you take a week of vacation the week before the trade show and a week of vacation after the trade show. You're not in the office as much. You're disappearing a little bit and you're not keeping your eye on the ball as much. They're a little worried about that. You've got this continuing kind of malaise in the coin-op business. Gene Lipkin's very good, and his team is very good. And coin-op's not losing money, but it's just it's not driving forward in a big way either. It's not bailing out the consumer division. They're in the process of creating what's going to become the uh, Atari's first home computers, the 400 and 800 home computers. And there's some disagreement with strategy on how to go with those. There's the pinball division, which is just kind of there. It's it's starting to figure itself out, but people are getting impatient with that because it's been around since like 75 or 76, and it's still not got much to show for it, despite all of that. So there's a sense at Warner that there may need to be a change of some kind. Of
0: senior leadership.
1: That's right. And then there's a big meeting in November 1978, a big budget meeting where all the Warner divisions are meeting with, with Steve Ross in the office of the president to figure out what they're going to do and where they're going to go. Nolan Bushnell comes into this meeting and basically tells them that the market is saturated for the VCS. It's time to move on to the next big thing and just dump the inventory and move on to the next big thing. Ray Kassar and Manny Girard don't believe that at all. They believe that the market is stronger than the retailers think it is. That what they have managed to get into retailers is going to sell through, and that once that sells through, there's going to be big demand the next year for more product. Devolves into a screaming match is is my understanding as they uh, hash it out between each other after the meeting. Steve Ross takes Manager Art aside and is like, "What are we going to do?" And Manny tells him, "Well, there's nothing we can do either." On December 25th, there won't be a VCS left on store shelves, and we have a hit, and there's no problem. Or on December 26th, it's going to be a disaster, but it's too late to do anything about that now, so we just wait until December 26th, take stock of the situation, and uh, figure out what to do from there. Well, the VCS turns out to be a hit. Obviously, they still got that leftover inventory they couldn't sell, but those 500,000 units that they did get on shelves, that does very well. Sells out. Mm-hmm. Cartridges do well; they have a hit. So that pretty much does in Nolan's credibility because he was saying he wanted so to adamantly. Yeah. yeah, they're already kind of fed up with him, and Ray is doing such a good job steering consumer to new success here that they decide it's time for Nolan to go. But, but it's his baby. It is, but you know. A lot of people talk about, you know, Nolan Bushnell, what might have happened if he had stayed. It's like he wouldn't have let it ruin. He would have kept on top of new technology. He would have been strong and, and good and so much better than Ray Kassar. But that's, that's right. That's because he's the messiah. There, there's not much to that. I mean, could they have hired somebody better than Ray Kassar? I mean, that's possible. That's certainly possible. And we'll talk about Ray's personality some probably more in the, in the next episode. But, but it's
0: almost like they romanticized Nolan Bushnell. She sure. would have sent now, and because of his magnetic personality today and all the interviews he's given and all the reflections he's given, that people create an image of him that is not so much the reality, especially at that time.
1: Exactly. Nolan was an enthusiastic guy. But as the company became larger and larger, enthusiasm alone wasn't enough to really steer the ship. He liked the engineers a lot, and he loved hanging out in the engineering labs and seeing what they were doing, but the company is getting to the point that it's so big that maybe that's not what your chairman is supposed to be doing, is hanging out with the engineers and and awing over the latest stuff. It's to the point where technology alone isn't going to grow your company anymore. You need a solid business base in finance and sales and marketing to Grow the business past this point because they've already got the technology and they've already got the technology people in place. So Nolan's role in that is not necessarily so great anymore. And Nolan can't necessarily drive that himself to the same degree anymore. And Nolan's not always necessarily going to be right. Nolan's been involved in a lot of ventures since Atari, and only one of them really had any period of real success, and that was Chuck E. Cheese. And for info on that, look up the Chuck E. Cheese episode. Exactly. We, we won't go into great detail on that here because we already did Chuck E. Cheese. Obviously, it started as a part of Atari in this period, but we don't need to rehash that. And Chuck E. Cheese ended up crashing and burning later, too, during a period of time where Nolan took his eye off the ball again, when he was mm-hmm. off racing his yacht and living in his mansions and not paying attention to what was going on. He wasn't supposed to be running it day to day. He was, again, chairman, but he had taken his eye off off the ball and it had fallen apart. Nolan Bushnell had gotten Atari about as far as he could have. He had the neat idea to do a coin-operated video game. He had the neat idea to do a home video game. He supported the neat idea to do an interchangeable cartridge-based home video game. That was about as far as you could go in terms of outlandish new technology. From this point on, it was going to be more about incremental upgrades of what you already had and technology cycles and hardware cycles, it wasn't going to be about the next huge idea anymore. I think history's borne that out because obviously there's occasionally been another huge idea. Certainly CD-ROM was a huge idea. The internet was a huge idea. But there really wasn't another huge idea to be had in the technology of video games in the late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. It had kind of gotten to the point where it was just about improving the technology that was already there. And Nolan Bushnell wasn't necessarily the guy to oversee that kind of process. He's more of the pie-in-the-sky, wild-new-idea guy. And all the wild-new-ideas he tried in the 1980s, whether it be robots or GPS, which obviously eventually paid off big, but not during the time that he was working with it, or whatever else that, that he tried to do. None of it really worked out, so clearly it was probably time. He was less engaged in the company, and he was too concerned about always moving on to the next big thing.
0: And he needed to move on from a toy to the next big thing.
1: Exactly, because a company can't just keep doing the next big thing, the next big thing every couple of years, or that company... Will just stop growing. You have to ride what you have for a bit and then figure out how to gracefully transition from what you have to the next thing. And some companies figure out how to do that graceful transition, and some don't. But it was not time to introduce the next big leap over the VCS, which is what Nolan wanted to do. It was time to grow the VCS market, grow the Atari brand, and then gradually move the Atari brand from the VCS into the next big thing, whether that was a home computer, which they were starting to work on, or if that was just a more souped-up console, or if that was some kind of massive communication thing, because they eventually start the Atari Television that's involved in phones and video phones and network communication, which, again, doesn't really go anywhere. But it's like you can go on and try those next big things, but right now you need to grow the brand you have and stabilize the brand you have Up to this point, Atari grew into the next big thing by taking the next big financing step. They got venture capital shortly before entering the home game business. They were acquired by a larger company before getting into the VCS business. Well, now they're already owned by a major new publicly traded company. There's no place else to go to get that next huge level of financing. At this point, you have to grow your business, You have to grow it so that you internally have the money to start investing in your own pie-in-the-sky projects. There's no more shortcut. And Nolan's way was not going to get them there. I sympathize with Warner for firing, and it was a firing. Nolan likes in interviews to say that it's hard to tell whether I was fired or I quit, but either way, neither of us wanted me to be there anymore. Well, that's fine, except that uh, the copy of the letter has surfaced, where... Manny Gerrard fired him, basically saying, you are you are terminated, sir. Good day. <laughs> so he he was fired, though I think it is true that his enthusiasm was also waning because of this situation. I don't think he's lying about that. It's just, he, he didn't quit. He was fired. I think that under the circumstances, it was probably a good justified and, and a good thing. So he was fired. Joe Keenan was kicked upstairs and became the new chairman. He didn't last long. He didn't stay long. But He was not dismissed at the exact same time Nolan was. Ray Kassar became the new president of the company. And then when Joe Keenan left just a few months later, Ray Kassar also took over the chairmanship of the company. That is kind of the beginning of a whole new era of the company. That's probably the best place to to stop this current episode because now we're going to be getting into a whole new paradigm, a whole new manager, a whole new management style and a drastic reshaping of the company.
0: Yeah, this is where things become crazy. It's during this era where we have the big video game crash. It's really important we want to spend a whole episode really detailing this era, this time, and the ultimate huge rise of Atari and fall. It's the final light of Atari. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds for Part 3, the Ray star era. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast@gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is airplane mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.